0: In verses 24 and 26 of Matthew 7, Jesus refers to these words of mine. And what he intends for us to do is to basically reflect on everything he has said up until that point. Remember, this is one sermon, this was all said in one sitting. So even though we have taken nine weeks to go, through this material, Jesus did this in one setting. So He comes to the end and He refers to these words of mine, and He is inviting us to reflect on everything that He has said up until this point. So let's just take a moment and briefly recap what He has said. I don't think that every single one of us has been here for all nine weeks, and so It's important if we're going to understand what he's doing in verses 21 through 29 to understand what he has said up until this point. And I opened this series by saying that we treat the Sermon on the Mount like we typically treat the rest of the Bible. At least that's our default mode. That's the way I used to read the Sermon on the Mount. We treat it like like it's a divine self-help manual. The way that I used to read the Sermon on the Mount was as if it was a blueprint for having your best life now. If you can simply observe these things and do these things, then you can have your best life now. Okay? It's a, it's a blueprint for better living. It's, it's, you know, it's sort of instructions from above that will help us get by. It's a divine self-help manual, but actually, as we have seen, The Sermon on the Mount shows that the Christian life is a gracious impossibility. In fact, that's Jesus' whole point. He wants to set us free by showing us our need for a rightness, a righteousness that no matter how hard we try, we will never, ever, ever be able to attain on our own. An impossible righteousness that is always, always out of our reach. So the Sermon on the Mount is not a goal which is the way we typically read it. It's not a goal, but it's a wall that we crash into so that we finally cry out, I can't do it. That's what it is. That's what his goal is. And he starts in Matthew chapter 5 with the Beatitudes, and I said that the Beatitudes are not a prescription for a better life. They're not a series of steps on a ladder to climb up to God. They are a description of of bottom-of-the-ladder people that God comes down to. That's what it describes when you read through the Beatitudes the way, as I mentioned a number of weeks ago, the way we typically read it is if we do these things, then we will get these things. Okay? We read it as if it's a divine checklist. If we can get these things done, then we can have these things. And we almost read it as if it really is a a ladder that we can climb so that we can get closer to God. And what we discovered when we looked through this was that it's not Um, It's not a a prescription for ways that we can live better so much as it's a description of the bottom of the ladder type people that God comes down to and what a life gripped by God's descending one-way love begins to look like. It's a description of what your life and my life begins to look like when our hearts are genuinely gripped by God's unconditional love, His descending one-way love. And then in chapter 5, verses 17 and following, Jesus makes it clear that God only accepts perfection, not progress. It's a big deal, okay, because most of us think that if we try hard and if we work hard and if we can do the right things and avoid the wrong things, even though we are imperfect, God will finally approve of us based on those things. Well, we're trying. We're different than we used to be. We're making serious efforts. I'm trying to sacrifice for my wife and for my children. I'm trying to give more. I'm trying to do the things that the Bible tells me to do. I'm trying. Doesn't that count for something? And what Jesus wants us to see is that God only accepts perfection. He will only finally approve of perfection. Not progress, but the good news of the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus came to fulfill the law, the God who makes the demand of perfection meets the demand of perfection for us. That's his point. This is the wall. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. So I said a few weeks ago, if your heart really, really craves a to-do list, here's one item you can put right at the top. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now once I typically say that to people and they go, <laughs> I say, okay now, shut up and thank God for Jesus. It's a point, okay? This is the point of the entire Bible. The point of the entire… this isn't a fortune cookie, okay? This isn't like a collection of, you know, Confucius' sayings. This is intended to point us to Jesus. It's intended to do two things, to show us that we can't and never ever could, and that Jesus did and promised that He would. That's what it's about, okay? So the Sermon on the Mount is that section of the Bible where Jesus puts up this wall that we crash into, and when we finally fall on our knees and fall flat on our face, when we crash and burn. We're ready to hear good news that Jesus has come to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. So, Jesus, um, and you see this really um, that when he talks about Jesus coming to fulfill the law, when you read the rest of the Gospels, came okay, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The Gospels are in large part the story of Jesus fulfilling those demands. Okay, so you read through the Gospels and you see that Jesus is the one who turns the other cheek. Jesus is the one who goes the extra mile. Jesus is the one who loves His enemies. Jesus is the one who prays for those who persecute Him. Everything that… every demand that is made here in the Sermon on the Mount, as you follow through the Gospels, you see Jesus specifically meeting those demands for sinners like you and me. And the way that I've typically put it is that Jesus fulfilled all of God's holy conditions for us so that our relationship to God could be wholly unconditional. Okay, that's that's the beauty. It's why we talk a lot about Jesus here. Because without Jesus doing for us what we could never do for ourselves, we would all be in big trouble. None of this is about you. None of this is about me. None of this is about other people. All of this is about Jesus. We bank everything wholly on Him. It's not that we bank a lot on Him and a little on us. It's not that we trust a lot in Him and a little on us. We bank everything on Him because He is our only hope, our Redeemer, our Savior, the only one who could meet God's holy demands so that our relationship to God could be wholly unconditional. And then in chapter 6 and 7, he moves on and shows us what this good news on the ground of real life looks like. We're free from worry about how to get because everything we need in Christ we have. We can give instead of take. We can be honest about the log in our eye. We, we can stop pretending that we're something that we're not. We can. Admit our faults and failures without feeling like the flesh is being ripped off of our bones because our identity is not anchored in our strength, but Christ's strength for us. It's not anchored in our success, but Christ's success for us. We can become generous. We can become sacrificial. All of these things He walks us through and He shows us when your heart and your mind is deeply gripped and grasped by The centrality of what I have done for you. This is what your life begins to look like. You know, we talked a lot about anxiety and worry and despair and depression and all of those things that accompany self-salvation projects. All of those things we try to do to establish ourselves and justify ourselves and earn a good reputation and make people think that we're something that we know down deep inside we're not. All of those things make life stressful. And Jesus came to free us from that, and so when that is removed, freedom blossoms. And he describes here what a free life looks like. It's a life free of worry and anxiety. It's a life free of the pressure of always having to take and always having to get. Now you can simply give the freedom to give, the the freedom to take off your masks, the freedom to stop pretending, the freedom to be generous, the freedom to be sacrificial, the freedom to love people who don't love you because you don't actually need the love of anybody else if you have all of the love that God has given you in Jesus. So now, because you have every, all the love you need in Jesus, you can give all the love you have to other people, including your enemies. That's freedom, okay? That's what freedom is. That's what freedom looks like, and he describes that in chapter 6 and chapter 7. And he makes the point that I made last week at the end, toward the end of chapter 7, that all of this begins to happen naturally, okay? And the picture that he uses uh, in chapter 7 is the picture of a tree and fruit. And I mentioned last week that you don't grow fruit from a tree by telling it to grow, okay? Have you ever tried that? Uh, Your neighbors may have called the police or something if they saw you outside screaming at the top of your lungs to a tree. Grow! Oranges, grow! Grow! Okay? It doesn't work. And we laugh at that, and I mentioned this last week. We laugh at that, but you know, parents, we do this all the time, don't we? I mean, I finally told my wife yesterday, Kim, it's not additional information that our children need. Well, when I'm talking about our children, our oldest son, who will remain nameless, okay? He's not dealing with ignorance, okay? It's not like if we just tell him one more time, all of a sudden the light's going to go on. Oh, um, of course. I said, that's not it. Something has to happen on the inside that you and I cannot do, okay? That's when it's going to take root. And what will typically happen, at least this is what happened in my life and probably happened in your life, is you have to wait till something bad happens. When you crash and you burn, why do most people come to church? Seriously. Think about the first time you ever walked in the door to a church if you didn't grow up in the church, for instance. What caused you to go? Wasn't it this sense of angst? this sense that something wasn't right this sense that i'm at the end of myself i'm at the end of my rope well that's how god gets our attention he he breaks us down and he brings us to the end of ourselves and as i've said before it's only when we come to the end of ourselves that we come to the beginning of god's amazing grace and are radically changed forever well so The same thing happens, and Jesus gives us this picture, when it comes to growth. Everything He describes in chapter 6 and chapter 7, you know, where we we don't have to worry anymore because everything we need in Christ we have. We we don't have to spend our lives getting and taking. We can spend our lives giving. We can be sacrificial and generous and all of those things. All of that actually begins to happen naturally, and we ruin it when we turn it into a checklist. Because now it's not organic, and it's not real. It's fake fruit. Okay? It's fruit that's polished nicely on the outside but rotting on the inside, which is exactly the way Jesus described the Pharisees. You look so clean on the outside. But because your heart isn't right, because you're doing it for wrong reasons, because you're doing it to bolster yourself, or you're doing it to gain a better reputation, or you're doing it to gain some social status that you don't think you have, or whatever the case, you want people to think you're, you know, super spiritual and godly and all that stuff, you ruin it. How does real fruit grow? Real fruit that is sweet and genuine, and he tells us, fruit grows by watering the root. Okay, so the fruit of good works grow naturally when we keep watering the root of faith with the word of the gospel. That's how it happens. So don't say, for instance, well, tell us us about good works, stop telling us about the gospel. Okay, I've had people say that. Okay, you know, when are we going to hear more about good works and less about the gospel? And I say, that doesn't even make sense, okay? There is no good works apart from the gospel. What my job is, is to stand up here and water the root every single week, okay? And as I do that, based on what the Bible says, We are promised by God that good fruit begins to develop organically, naturally, spontaneously. When we, you and I, get to heaven, or more accurately, when heaven comes down to us, okay, read Revelation, um, when that happens, when the kingdom of God becomes the kingdom, um, when God's kingdom comes down and is consummated here, is God gonna have to tell you and me how to spend our minutes and days in eternity? Or is it just going to be a spontaneous, sinless flow, okay? Well, if that's what it's ultimately going to be, then the process of sanctification and Christian growth should begin to look more and more like that, okay? So the more we have to be told what to do, the less sanctified we are. Okay, that's, that's the irony. Okay, you, don't, you don't become sanctified by talking about sanctification. You become sanctified by fixing your eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. So my goal as a preacher is to constantly fix your eyes on Christ, cause you, call you, summon you to fix your eyes on Christ, trusting that as you do, the fruit of good works, love for God and love for neighbor, begins to grow organically, naturally. Um, And then when we get to verses 21 through 27, Jesus ends where He began, but He raises the stakes here to the highest pitch. I mean, He ends on a super daunting note. Okay? He… He ends by describing in a very haunting way the reason that there will be many on that last day who think they're right with God, who will hear, depart from me, I never knew you. Now, he's not describing some people. He's not describing a few people. He's not even describing many people, okay? He's basically saying that there are multitudes of people who go through life thinking they know God when in fact they don't. And they will go through life believing that their relationship to God is assured because of what they have done. Okay? I mean, he really, really ratches it up here. And he absolutely, for the last time in this sermon, takes a shot at our natural default mode, that in some way, shape, or form, this thing is about me and what I do. And in the context of final judgment, Jesus demonstrates and demolishes a version of the Christian life that ultimately rests on do instead of Done, And the people in this passage who say, Lord, Lord, are not the atheists and the agnostics and all of the nasty people out there, okay? That's not who he's describing. These are people who have done ministry in Jesus' name, okay? If these verses don't cause you to step back and go, whoops, let me do some evaluation here of where I stand. and what I believe, then no verses will. okay, Banished from the presence of him who is everywhere, and erased from the knowledge of him who knows all, is the way C.S. Lewis described these verses. Which is incredibly daunting. Okay, so he is he's describing inside the church people. He's describing preachers. He's describing moral people, good people, people who prophesy in Jesus' name who do things in Jesus' name. He's not talking about outside the church people. He's talking about inside the church people. And these are people whom Jesus says, I never knew you because they were still placing their hopes in what they have done. They're clinging to something of their own. Notice, on that last day, Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. And they say, wait a second. Look at my record. Look at how hard I tried. I stayed in my difficult marriage instead of bailing, okay? Um, You know, I I sent my kids to a private school instead of a public school, okay? I only ate organic food, all right? I exercised. I gave money. I, 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 I. Look at all the things I did. Every time the pastor said we need help in the nursery, I went and volunteered. Okay. Every time someone asked me to do something inside the church, I did it. I mean, th- these are people who are inside God's community, who are lost, and even more lost than those outside because they actually think that they're in. They go through life totally deceived because in some way, shape, or form, they are banking, they are trusting Um, in something that they have done, a contribution that they have made, and you and I do this all the time. This is our natural default mode. And I say this all the time, but it's so true. It's true of me and it's true of you. The way you can see this playing out in your life and mine is when we really do believe that when we are being good and doing the things that the Bible tells us to do, God is happier with us, and when we're having a bad spiritual day and we're grumpy with people and we're sort of grumpy with God because He's put these people in our life, you know, and He's, I don't like the job that I have and I don't ever have enough money to pay the bills and, you know, my kids are a pain in the neck and, you know, blah, 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 okay, that somehow, someway, God's love for us diminishes on those days, Okay, now when that becomes, that's our natural default mode. And even some of you right now are going, well, isn't that true? No, it's not. Thank God it's not, okay? But that natural default mode of our hearts and minds shows itself in those moments where we actually believe that God's love for us is dependent on my doing. When I do good, His love gets bigger. When I do bad, His love gets smaller. those are the people that Jesus is talking about here, <laughs> okay? People who actually believe that this thing at some level is riding on them, okay? I mean, look, look at my, look at my scorecard, God. There are, way more, there are way more checks in the spiritual pro column than the spiritual con column, okay? I've done, I've done pretty well. Well, Jesus wants us to see that even if that something is, look, I've changed, I'm, I'm not the way I used to be, uh, Jesus wants us to see that regardless of how well we think we're doing or how much better we're becoming when you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect is the requirement and not, look how much I've grown over the years, we begin to realize we don't have a leg to stand on before God. Okay, so our, our transformation, our purity, our growth in godliness, our moral advances and spiritual successes simply are fall short of the sinlessness that God demands. So at any point in time, if we are banking ultimately, grounding ultimately our knowledge of God, or more importantly, God's knowledge of us based on something we do, we're in trouble and we can count ourselves among the many that Jesus describes here. I mean, in verses twenty-four. Through 27, Jesus uses a picture to illustrate what happens to those who bank on what they've done. They're washed away. Okay, I mean, they're, they're ultimately washed away, swept away, like all of the people in Noah's day. So, if God requires perfection, and there's no real assurance without it, then what hope do I have? I mean, how how can i know that i know i would assume that if you're a christian or you think you're a christian you certainly hope that you're a christian you certainly hope that somehow some way when your life is over and you meet god that he will say well done good job not guilty pardoned okay now How can you go through life now knowing that for sure? And these people banked on trying to gain some measure of assurance by looking at what they have done, the contribution they made, the changes that had taken place in their life, the fact that, you know… Once God saved them, or once they thought God saved them, they got better, their life improved, they became more mature, they became more responsible, they actually started picking up their clothes when their wife asked them to, uh, you know, whatever, okay? Not in any way being autobiographical, um, but, I mean, these these are the ways that we typically think. I'm getting better, progress is happening, surely God must be ultimately pleased with how I'm maturing, and yet what Jesus says here is there is one standard that will ultimately gain God's approval, and it's perfection. There's only one way that anyone is going to hear a not guilty verdict, and that is if you are perfect. You're not, you're in trouble. So what? Okay? So what's... What's the solution? How can I avoid being counted among the many on that day? Well, that's the question that Jesus wants us to ask at the end of this sermon, okay? He wants to scare us a little bit, a lot. He wants to scare us. I mean, He wants us to get to the end of this sermon and go, what am I really banking on here? What am I really trusting in? I mean, After everything he has said in chapter 5, chapter 6, and the first part of chapter 7, he finally crescendos his argument here by saying, this is what separates the wheat from the chaff, okay? Ultimately, on that last day, this is what separates people, those who bank on do and those who bank on done, period, okay? That's it. So, I mean, he, this his argument just, it, it hits its climax by fast-forwarding to that last day. Where are you going to be? In the company that banks on do, or the company that has wholly banked on done? When you are on your deathbed, this is the way I often think about it. When I am, when I am on my deathbed, and that will probably be sooner rather than later, okay, okay, sorry. Um, When I am on my deathbed, when you are on your deathbed, what are you going to be most thankful for? What in those waning moments of your life are you going to be most thankful for? What are you going to be banking on? What is going to give your weak and weary heart the assurance that you need? Is it going to be, well, I did this and I did that in Jesus' name? If so, you will never, ever, ever lay on your deathbed with the peace that passes all understanding. I mean, as much as young people like me, okay, I'll be 40 when I see you next, by the way, um, but as much as young people like me, and 40 is what my friends tell me, the new 30, is that true? Please tell me it's true because I think I'm going through a midlife crisis. If I... If I return with a red Ferrari, okay, which I can't afford, but someone do something to me, okay? Um, slap me, kick me, do something, tell me to wake up out of my midlife crisis. Um, but as, when we're young, you know, and we want to talk to young people all the time who have as their goal their ambition, I want
1: to
0: I change the world. And I said, I remember those days. I remember the days when not only did I want to change the world, but I was convinced I was going to change the world, and then I realized I can't even change me, all right? I can't change my wife. I can't change my children. I can't really change or control what other people even think about me. So how in the world am I going to change the cosmic order? It's impossible, okay, so the idealism of our youth begins to get smaller and smaller and smaller as we begin to deal with the realism of life in a broken world as a broken person and all of that stuff. But I oftentimes, fast forward, I think about all of the idealism about change and progress and all of those things getting better that plagues us in our youth. And I think, when, I, when I'm on my deathbed, what is going to secure my heart? Is it going to be looking back on the things I did, and the progress I made, and the way that I changed, and how much better I became? Is that what I'm ultimately going to rest my hopes in? Or is it going to be, Jesus paid it all. It is finished. J. Gresham Machen, who was the founder of Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, on his deathbed sent a note to his good friend John Murray who taught theology at Westminster Seminary, and he said in his last moments, his last recorded words were these, so thankful for Christ's active obedience, no hope without it. Here's this great theologian, and theologians make a distinction between Christ's active obedience and His passive obedience, okay? His passive obedience is on the cross taking the punishment that we deserved. His act of obedience is what Jesus describes here, His fulfilling of the law. Okay, if Christ had not fulfilled the law on our behalf, then there would be no righteousness to impute to us at His death. So both of those things are really important. And it was just interesting to me that Machen said, I'm so thankful for Christ's act of obedience, no hope without. I'm so glad He fulfilled the law for me. I'm so glad He came to do for me what I could never do for myself. I'm so glad that He turned the other cheek for me, that He went the extra mile for me, that He prayed for His enemies for me. Because when I look back on my life and I think about how many times I didn't turn the other cheek, and how many times I didn't go the extra mile, and how many times I refused to pray for my enemies, at least pray for good things. how many times that I, you know, st- uh, I struck back at those who were persecuting me. Blah blah blah. As Machen's laying there in his bed and he's thinking about all of the ways he has failed, and his idealism is gone, and now he's staring face to face into the reality of death. Where is his hope? Where is yours? Where is mine? Is it in do or done? And that's what He describes here, so how can I avoid being counted among the many on that day? Well, that's a question Jesus wants us to ask, and the New Testament answer to this question is clear. Romans 1:17. for in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And then in Romans chapter 4, verse 5, and to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. I mean, the New Testament is abundantly clear on where the answer comes from to this question that Jesus wants us to ask How do I avoid being counted among the many on that last day? How can I avoid hearing these words, depart from me, I never knew you. How can I ensure that I am not counted among the many on that last day? How, how? Are you looking in or are you looking out? Are you banking on God's contribution to you and the person and work of Christ or your contribution to God? What are you ultimately anchoring your hopes in. The righteousness that God requires can only come from God. It does not come from us. We don't produce it. We don't achieve it. We receive it. The verdict on all of our doing, Jesus is saying, okay, the verdict on all of our doing, even our very best works when it comes to meeting God's standard, is this, depart from me, I never knew you. That's His verdict even your best works, all of your progress and all of your morality and all of your so-called goodness, all of your good behavior, all of those things, when when it is measured against God's standard of perfection, if you're banking on that, the only thing you will hear is, depart from me, I never knew you. So faith is the only ground for assurance, that God-gifted miracle of believing the impossible, that God forgives me and loves me because of what Christ did for me. It's the only way. The only way that I can get up every morning and know that I'm God's and know that I will not hear these words is because I totally believe that 2,000 years ago, Someone came and lived the life that I could never live and died the death I should have died, and three days later came alive, guaranteeing that one day, one day everything will be made new. I believe it. And the only reason I believe it is because God has granted me the faith to believe I mean, you can say there's a lot of historical evidence for the person and work of Jesus and all that stuff. Yes, but there's not a lot of historical evidence for an imputed righteousness, okay? I mean, there's a lot of historical evidence that this guy named Jesus really lived, and he was really put to death, and that his body went missing three days later, and the only probable explanation is that he really did rise again from the dead because there were soldiers outside, and the rock was big, and you know, you've heard all the arguments. Well, the arguments don't create faith, okay? I mean, Paul says in Romans 1, the righteous will live by faith. Arguments can provide grounds, reasons. They can provide us with a rational framework so that we can say, we're not irrational people for believing in this. We're not believing contrary to evidence, but evidence doesn't produce faith. Arguments don't produce faith. And the only reason, and and no evidence, as I said a second ago, no evidence is out there that shows me that imputed righteousness happened, okay? The righteousness that I need. So I can get up every day. The only reason I can get up every day is not because I look at my life and go, I know that I'm God's because I'm better today than I was yesterday, okay? Or I'm better five years, I'm, I'm better now than I was five years ago. Am I? In some ways maybe, in other ways not. In some ways, I'm probably worse. Okay? I mean, five years ago, or ten years ago, twenty years ago, I didn't care what anybody thought. My lifestyle resembled the fact that I didn't care what anybody thought. Now I actually care what people think. Well, does that mean I'm getting better or worse? Well, in one sense, worse. Okay? I mean, I'm not doing all the bad things that I used to do. In that sense, I'm better. Why am I not doing all the bad things I used to do? Well, maybe because I'm being more self-preservational. Well, that means I'm worse. Can you get it? You're really not getting that much better, all right? And if you look at your life as a way to ground the peace that passes all understanding, assuring you that one day you will hear God's welcome instead of get away from me, you better look to Jesus. You better bank on Him. You better rest everything on what He has done for you, and not what you do. So. Assurance happens when God-given faith enables me to believe that I am forever pardoned, that Christ's righteousness is mine, and that in Christ God does not count my sins against me. That's what Paul says in Corinthians, that beautiful, beautiful verse. That In Christ God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting men's sins against them. Well, who did he count our sins against? Christ. And it's as God gives us the faith to believe. And that's why the preaching of the gospel is so important, because it is the preaching of the gospel that produces faith. Okay, it's when you hear, when you hear what God has done for sinners. That is the means by which God the Holy Spirit creates faith. And because our faith is always weak and wavering, always because we're sinners, we need to hear this good word all the time as a way to strengthen our faith, embolden our faith so that you and I can leave here today banking on Jesus and not on ourselves. And tomorrow and the next day and the next day, you'll begin banking on yourself again. And so you'll come back next Sunday and you'll need to hear the good news again so that your faith can be emboldened and strengthened. It's watering the root of faith with the water of the gospel. So true. Assurance, in other words, is grounded not on some work from inside us, but on the word of the gospel which comes from outside us and convinces us of what Jesus has done. I read this quote this morning from an old hymn writer, and I thought it was so fitting for closing out this series. The voice from the tree, and he's talking about now Jesus on the cross crying out, it is finished. The voice from the tree did not summon them to do, but to be satisfied with what was done. It's that simple, folks. (laughs) I'm serious. It's that simple. And somehow when we become Christians, we forget that. It's almost like we go from banking on done to get us in, and then we bank on do to keep us in. God in Christ initially earned God's favor for us, so we're thankful it's done. But then somehow, the Christian life is a life spent trying to get better and do good things so that we can maintain God's favor in us. It's done from start to finish. Okay, that's the great golden chain of salvation that we read about in Romans chapter eight. That my friend Mike Horton says there are no human fingerprints on this chain. Okay, those those whom he uh, predestined, he also called, and those who he called, he justified, and those who he justified, he also glorified. From start to finish, salvation is all of God. Okay, and so we make this mistake. We We are happy to give great testimony to the fact that I'm a Christian today. I'm in today because of what God did. But if I want God to stay happy with me, I've got to shift my focus from done to do. That's our natural default mode, and Jesus says, those people will hear depart from me, I never knew you. The stakes are high, people. Okay? The stakes are high. This is serious business. That's why you're going to hear me say, done, 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 until I'm 90 years old. Because the stakes are high and I love you. Okay? And I don't want you to hear depart from me, I never knew you. And when you say, okay, I got the done part, now let's get the do. That tells me you don't get the done part. Okay? I mean, like I said, like Jesus says, doing happens when hearts are gripped by done. It happens. It doesn't have to be manufactured and manipulated. It's organic, it's fruit. Okay? So it grows. It grows when, I mean, when hearts are gripped by done, doing happens. And so. Done, 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 done is what I'm going to constantly remind you to rest in. Done, 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 done is what I'm going to constantly remind you to bank on. Because if you don't, you're in trouble. I'm in trouble. So, the summary of the Sermon on the Mount is simply this. If you want to know, I told Kim yesterday, I said, this is three chapters in one sentence. All right? There you go. Call it a gift. Um, (laughs) The summary of the Sermon on the Mount in one sentence. God demands perfect righteousness. That's the law. God delivers perfect righteousness. That's the gospel. That's the Sermon on the Mount. That's what Jesus wants you to know. God demands perfect righteousness, oh, I'm in trouble. Good news, God delivers perfect righteousness in Jesus. That, that, that's it. What is the Bible? I mean, what, you really want to know what the central storyline of the Bible is? That's it. God demands perfect righteousness. I'm in trouble. God delivers perfect righteousness. Praise Jesus. That's what it is. It's, it, it, it is intended to make you worship. Okay? Um, let me just conclude with this. B.B. Warfield, who was a great Princeton theologian a long, long time ago, said, and this is so good there is nothing in us or done by us at any stage of our earthly development that makes us acceptable to God. Most of us don't believe that. <clears throat> you don't come into this world believing that. You don't. You don't live life believing that. We still believe, even if you're a Christian, you still believe that there has got to be something in us or something done by us at some stage of our earthly development that makes us acceptable to God. And Warfield says there is nothing in us or done by us at any stage of our earthly development that makes us acceptable to God. We must always be accepted for Christ's sake or we can never be accepted at all. This is not only true of us when we believe, it's just as true after we have believed. It is always on His blood and righteousness alone that we can rest. That's a huge paragraph, packed. It reminds me of the story that I've told you before about the pastor on his deathbed who said to his wife, I am certain I'm going to heaven because I cannot remember one good work I've ever done. <laughs> now, I said that one time and on a blog and someone commented that they didn't like that. Okay. I said, well, what's the alternative? I'm certain I'm going to heaven because I can remember the good things I've done? I mean, that's the alternative to that statement. So when this pastor is on his deathbed and he says to his wife, I'm certain I'm going to heaven because I can't remember one truly good work I've ever done, what he was saying was my assurance is grounded by faith where only true assurance can ever be grounded. Christ's perfect work for me, not my imperfect work for Him. So I close with this. Rest assured, before God, the righteousness of Christ is all we need. And before God, the righteousness of Christ is all we have. Pray that God would take that and massage it down deep into your bones, that over the course of this summer. As many of us sort of go our separate ways and come back shortly, pray, just pray that God would open your eyes and soften your heart and help you to see, help you to see in ways you've never seen before. Ask that God would set you free that God would come and enable you to see and taste a freedom that you have never seen and tasted before, that He would cause your unbelieving heart as He causes my unbelieving heart to rest wholly undone. And He has promised that He answers prayers like,